Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Monday, August 8th, 2022. It's been 3,082 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 166 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with some assessment of the current status of the war. First, Ukrainian military leaders have forced the Russian military to respond to the possibility of a counteroffensive in Kherson and Zaporizhia, likely impacting previously planned strategies to capture Siversk, Slovyansk, and Kramatorsk. Second, the Ukrainian interdiction of Russian supplies and troop movements is impacting ongoing offensives near Bakhmut. Third, Russian forces continue to focus significant military resources to grind Ukrainian defenses west of Donetsk, suffering heavy losses for almost no gains since the beginning of August. Fourth, we had expected operational tempo west of Donetsk and around Bakhmut to increase by today, after slowing down on Friday. But we haven't seen an uptick, raising questions about how much personnel Russia has available to defend a 2,400-kilometer front while trying to break through eight-year-old Ukrainian defensive lines. Fifth, Russia has significantly increased misinformation and disinformation campaigns in an attempt to erode Western aid to Ukraine. Sixth, Amnesty International's clarification of its report on Ukrainian tactics is likely too little too late after scoring a propaganda victory for Russia. Seventh, the Russian ministry continues stealth mobilization efforts with volunteer units, forced conscription in the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, and forming penal units through their proxy, private military company Wagner Group. Finally, based on historical weather records, mud season in Ukraine is 40 to 55 days away, which will pressure both belligerents to take action before conditions turn unfavorable for major ground offensives. The Russian Ministry of Defense confirmed it was mobilizing the 3rd Army from volunteers. The 72nd Separate Motorized Rifle Brigade in Orenburg Oblast is being assembled as part of the effort. Currently, the brigade has less than 100 recruits, below even a company in strength. Another round of forced mobilization is ongoing in the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. Men who were previously rejected due to health problems, lack of education, or because they were in a critical civilian role in defense production are being mobilized. Separatist officials have suggested taking people from the occupied territories and moving them into forced labor camps to maintain defense production and civilian services. Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republic volunteers are becoming increasingly dissatisfied with the equipment situation on the front lines. Social media user and DNR soldier Prizrak Novorossi lamented that a fundraiser for body armor only collected $2,500, 
enough for three soldiers. The Crimean mail blogger Veselovsky criticized Novorossi, saying he was shitting all over the leadership of the DNR. Novorossi blasted the response in a screed on Telegram to his 150,000 followers, quote, You have the blood of the best of our people on you. You have their deaths on you, their deaths from the lack of armor, tourniquets, emergency bandages, or a simple inability to provide basic assistance. None of the mobilization reserves was trained for eight years, and now the initiative guys are trying to do it in haste, because there's no one else to do it, and they don't care at the top. But you, scum, were silent and shut everyone's mouths. Their crippled lives are on your conscience. End quote. LNR volunteer Mertz, who was visited by Russian police after people accused him of being anti-Russian, wrote about how there is a lack of even basic radio equipment for Russian forces. Quote, I was recently in a workshop where signalmen of the 2nd Army Corps of the LPR are repairing R-123 and R-173 radio stations from combat vehicles. No, they do not give the restored R-123 tube radios to a museum after restoration. They put them back in tanks. End quote. The R-123 radios are 60 years old, and tubes to fix radios are in scarce supply since global production stopped years ago. Ukrainian Brigadier General Dmitry Krasilnikov provided a candid assessment of why the Ukrainian defense collapsed so quickly. Quote, What happened with Lysychansk is that the enemy went to Lysychansk from the other side. So we moved reserves to Severodonetsk, and the enemy broke through the oil refinery to Lysychansk from the southern side. How did this happen? Well, again, everything has a limit on patience, a limitation on endurance, and so on. That is, I saw a unit that had been repulsing all the attacks for three months, had been counterattacking, had been chasing the enemy, and then the moment came when, bang, and everybody refused to do the mission. Just abruptly, that's all. So there was some breakdown. End quote. General Krasilnikov said in the interview that Ukraine needs to take a NATO-oriented approach of rotating troops to second or third lines of defense so they can rest and provide advice and training for replacement troops. Both Ukraine and Russia are struggling to train and move more personnel into the conflict. But Russia's supply problems compound the problem. We had assessed that it was too late for Russia to do a general mobilization in the middle of June. A declaration of war and mobilization would be politically unpopular— and would go against the official Kremlin line that everything is going to plan. Mud season in Ukraine is less than two months away, and the first snow is likely only a few weeks after that. The steppe of Ukraine in winter is where invading armies have gone to die for 1,500 years. The Russian Federation armed forces were stunningly unprepared for cold weather when they launched their initial invasion into Ukraine on February 24th. Even if military planners expected hostilities to take two weeks— Soldiers still lacked essential cold-weather gear and training, resulting in thousands of casualties from cold-weather injuries. Let's take a look at some regional updates. We start in the Donbass region with the slovyansk bilohorivka berestova triangle. The Russian objective here is to maintain territorial control and ground lines of communication, control insurgency, and integrate captured territory into Russia. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent advances on Siversk, Slovyansk, and Kramatorsk, support insurgents, exploit weaknesses, and interdict supplies. Russian forces made two advances on Ukrainian positions on the administrative border of Luhansk and Donetsk without success. Russian forces attempted to improve their positions near Verkno-Kamyansky, but were repelled and fell back to their previous defensive position. 
they launched a second, more potent attack early on August 8th and were unsuccessful. Further south, Russian forces probed Ukrainian positions in Bilohorivka. The squad-sized force was destroyed. In northeast Donetsk, Russian forces shelled Siversk, Verknokamyanske, and Hryorivka. The Russian air force launched an airstrike on Spirne, and Russian forces also shelled Rajhorodok and Kramatorsk. Let's shift to assessment for a minute. We maintain there will be periods of low to no activity in this region, followed by a day or two of small offensive actions by both belligerents. It has been almost a week since Russian forces have attempted any offensive operations in the region. In our assessment, the artillery shelling of Rajhorodok does not indicate a future Russian advance from the Lyman area in the short or medium term. The Russian Ministry of Defense has drawn down troops from this region to Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson in anticipation of a larger Ukrainian counteroffensive. Just to the south, in Bakhmut, the Russian objective is to capture the Bakhmut-Solidar complex and collapse the Svitlodarsk salient before August 31st and indict the Bakhmut-Siversk T-5013 highway G-lock. The Ukrainian objective is to defend Bakhmut-Solidar while managing equipment and personnel losses, minimize civilian casualties, and defend G-locks. Russian proxy forces, led by private military company Wagner Group, and supported by terrorist elements of the Imperial Legion of Russia, attempted to advance on Yakovlivka, north of Solidar, and were unsuccessful. Russian forces did not attempt a direct assault on Solidar, blocked by Ukrainian defensive positions at the Chips plant on the eastern edge of the settlement. Russian proxy forces attacked Bakhmut from Pokrovsk, but did not advance closer. Ukrainian forces destroyed a pedestrian bridge that crosses the Bakhmatovka River as a defensive measure. Proxy forces of the Russian Federation Armed Services also attempted to advance on Vershina from Roti and were unsuccessful. In the Svitlodarst bulge, Russian and Ukrainian forces continued to fight in Kodema and for control of Zaitseve. Russian Air Force flew combat missions to strike Bakhmut, Solidar, and Zaitseve. Some more assessment here. Russian forces have reduced the tempo of ground attacks towards Solidar, Bakhmut, and the remnants of the Svitlodarsk bulge for three days. Using previous ground offensives as a benchmark, beginning on May 12th when Russian forces were advancing from Popasna, it wasn't unusual for a 36- to 72-hour pause to reconstitute troop strength. A significant difference in the ongoing offensive toward Bakhmut and Solidar is a dramatic reduction in artillery support for the advance and an increased reliance on air power. According to data analyst Ragnar Gudmundsson, the number of shellings on Solidar, Bakhmut, and Kodema has declined in the last seven days. The Russian Ministry of Defense depends on PMC Wagner Group, which has succeeded in the Svitlodarsk bulge and the more open and lightly populated villages east of Solidar and Bakhmut. The offensive has stalled as Russian troops and their proxy forces have advanced closer to the heavily fortified cities. Since May, Russian military doctrine in Ukraine has been to use artillery until nothing is worth defending and advance into the rubble. Ukrainian interdiction of ammunition and supplies has eliminated that strategy, although Russia maintains a significant advantage regarding artillery. In our assessment, Russian forces must capture Solidar and Bakhmut by employing building-to-building urban warfare. Without the artillery advantage closer to parity, this type of warfare favors not only Ukrainian tactics— but defenders in general. To be successful, Russian ground forces will have to deploy a 1-3 to to 1-7 to light infantry advantage in an urban combat setting. In southwest Donetsk and western Zaporizhia, 
The Russian objective is to capture the Donetsk Oblast to its administrative borders before August 31st, push Ukrainian forces out of firing range of Donetsk City, and defend the existing line of conflict in Zaporizhia to the Dnipro River. The Ukrainian objective is to defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, interdict supplies and disrupt logistics, and prepare for, or convince Russian forces they are preparing for, a wide-scale counteroffensive. Russian forces continue offensive operations west of Horlivka and Donetsk in an attempt to push Ukrainian forces out of artillery range and set conditions to drive west toward Pokrovsk. Russian forces attempted to improve their positions east of Krasnohorivka, but were unsuccessful. The settlement is on a shallow plateau, 50 to 100 meters higher than the approaching units of the Donetsk People's Republic separatist militia. Additionally, advancing from the south will require a water crossing. Theater-wide, Russian forces continue to focus their resources on Avdiivka and Piski, elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR and the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, attempted to advance into both settlements with little change in the line of conflict. The situation in Piski remains very dynamic. On August 6th, Russian separatists captured Ukrainian positions 200 meters northwest of the Butivka mine ventilation shaft. On the same day, the Sviato Iverskoho Genochi Monastery was destroyed by artillery fire. Another video showed DNR separatists on the grounds of the monastery retrieving a dead cow. On August 7th, another video emerged showing Ukrainian forces at the E-50 Ring Road Bridge holding defensive positions despite heavy artillery fire. Russian forces attempted to flank Ukrainian positions in Pisky by advancing toward Novelsky across open cropland. They suffered heavy losses and retreated. We maintain that LNR and DNR forces have firm control of the southern third of Pisky, while Ukraine holds the northern third. Control of the center of the settlement remains fluid. Russian forces attempted to advance on Marinka and remained unsuccessful. A video showed Russian troops being attacked in southern Marinka, south of the Shevchenko mine waste heap, a key Ukrainian defensive position. Although Russian forces have had some success south of Marinka in the last 48 hours, the advances are in open farmland exposed to Ukrainian artillery and hard to defend. Ukrainian forces shelled a complex of warehouses in the Kievsky district of Donetsk City, less than five kilometers from the line of conflict. The warehouses were burning out of control, but there weren't any secondary explosions that would indicate they held munitions. Russian forces shelled New York, Shevchenko, Nevelsky, and Netolov. Russian aircraft made airstrikes on Avdivka, Marinka, and Kamyanka. Near Pavlivka, Russian forces attempted to advance on Shevchenko and were unsuccessful. South of Marinka, Russian and Ukrainian forces traded artillery fire along the entire line of conflict to Kamyansk. There continue to be reports of fighting, artillery, and airstrikes in Volodymyrivka. On August 5th, we moved the line of conflict south into the settlement, and our assessment remains unchanged. The town is contested, but still under Russian control. Ukraine launched rockets from high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, on Melitopol, striking Russian troop and equipment staging areas. Ivan Fedorov, the exiled mayor, reported that up to 100 Russian troops were killed when their barracks were struck overnight. Fedorov also reported that some air defense equipment had been removed from the city to replace equipment that had been destroyed in Kherson, leaving Russian positions more exposed. In Russian-occupied Mariupol, insurgents set fire to the satellite factory in the eastern district. 
Emergency services poured 150 tons of water on the facility but could not extinguish the fire due to a lack of personnel, equipment, and foaming agents. Local officials stopped firefighting attempts and will let the factory burn itself out. Here's some assessment. On August 5th, we assessed that the destruction of the Russian ammunition depot in Makayevka would slow the DNR and LNR offensive into Avdiivka, Pisky, and Marinka, and that appears to have been accurate. While fighting continues unabated, the operational tempo of the Russian-backed advance is reduced. We maintain this is only temporary as logistics and supplies are reset. We expect increased ground attacks with additional artillery support in the coming week. We maintain that the goal of securing the entirety of the Donetsk Oblast by August 31st to support the planned September 11th Russian referendum is unrealistic. Based on the increasing insurgent activity in Melitopol, we have marked the region as having an active insurgency. There are now seven documented areas in Russian-controlled parts of Ukraine with active insurgencies. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Let's move on to the Kharkiv region, starting in northwestern Kharkiv. The Russian objective is to prevent Ukraine from reaching the international border with Russia, protect the Belgorod-Kupyansk G-lock, and break civilian will with continued terror attacks. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent further Russian advances on Kharkiv and pressure the Russian-controlled Shevchenkov-Izum G-lock. There wasn't any significant ground fighting northwest, north, or northeast of Kharkiv City. Both belligerents have settled into a defensive posture and have reinforced their defensive lines. Russian forces continue to shell, fire rockets using multiple launch rocket systems, and fire missiles on civilians, civilian infrastructure, and military positions. On August 6th, Kharkiv City was hit by up to six Iskander-M short-range ballistic missiles and S-300 anti-aircraft missiles being used in a ground-to-ground capacity. On August 7th, the city was hit with up to seven more missiles. At the time of recording, there wasn't information on targets, damage, or casualties. Our assessment is unchanged from August 5th. Ukrainian and Russian forces have established defensive lines, with Russian troops 20 to 30 kilometers northwest, north, and northeast of Kharkiv to prevent Ukrainian forces from reaching the Russian border. There will continue to be positional battles, reconnaissance, and probing for weaknesses, but we don't expect significant combat operations along this axis for the rest of the summer. On the Izum axis, the Russian objective is to hold the current line of conflict and prevent further advances by Ukrainian troops towards Izum. The Ukrainian objective is to defend against advances on Slovyansk and capitalize on weaknesses in Russian defenses, continue to harass and interdict Russian GLOCs, and execute special operation forces raids on Russian troops located behind the line of conflict. Russian forces made three small attacks southwest and south of Izum, but continue to employ piecemeal deployment of understaffed units without the benefit of combined arms tactics. A video showed elements of the First Guard Tank's army attempting to advance on Vernopilia from a forested area north of Brazivka. Tanks without light infantry support advanced 300 to 400 meters past the mapped line of conflict before being engaged by Ukrainian drone-directed artillery and retreating with losses. Russian forces also attempted to reconnoiter Ukrainian positions in Dolina and Bohorodichne. The platoon-sized units were engaged and retreated. 
The exiled Borova city council reported that almost all Russian troops have left the town and are now in camps in the woods. Within Borova, the sound of incoming artillery fire in the direction of Izum can be heard. Here's our assessment. Ukrainian forces are likely advancing on Sulihivka. The only defensible position outside the settlement is a forested area to the east. Ukrainian forces are trained and equipped and have employed the best tactics in forested areas since the start of the war. Russian forces depend more on armor, a liability within forested areas. Our assessment that the minor Russian offensives in the Shapil area northwest of Izum's were spoiling attacks appears to be accurate. Ground combat in the region has slowed, and there is too much pressure on the defensive lines southwest, south, and southeast of Izum. Ukrainian forces are now 15 kilometers from the southern edge of Izum, but don't have fire control in Brozhkivka. If Ukrainian forces can advance another 5 kilometers southwest, south, and southeast of Izum, they will have restored the line of conflict from late May. If they can establish new positions without needing additional combat resources, they can better target Russian GLOCs south of Izum. We remain unwilling to call the ongoing action by Ukrainian forces a counteroffensive. We maintain that Russian forces between Avdivka and Kopanki are now in a salient and at moderate risk of encirclement if Ukrainian forces were to make a breakthrough. It is implausible that Russian forces can secure the Donetsk Oblast by August 31st without securing Slovyansk as part of that self-declared deadline. Next, let's get some updates from the Dnipro, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia regions. In Kherson, the Russian objective is to prepare for a Ukrainian counteroffensive by building defenses, prevent further advances by Ukrainian troops toward Kherson, repair destroyed G-locks over the Dnipro River, and prevent the expansion of the insurgency. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River and push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket system attacks on Mykolaiv and Kriviri. Ukrainian forces hit the Antonovsky Bridge in Kherson for a third time, in the exact location as the two previous strikes. Heavy construction equipment and other materials on the bridge were still burning hours after the rocket strike. Russian forces are starting to broadly distribute ammunition in other supplies after a series of HIMARS and airstrikes caused significant losses of munitions since mid-July. Russian supply and logistics don't operate as well when decentralized and will require more trucks, fuel, and personnel to manage. Russian forces are also mining critical infrastructure locations in the Kherson region in anticipation of a Ukrainian counteroffensive. Civilians continue to share the temporary pontoon ferries across the Dnipro with military traffic in an attempt to prevent Ukrainian military strikes. Civilian traffic is also being diverted to the spillway bridge at the Nova Kahovka Dam. Russian forces shelled and then launched an attack on Blachodatne, about 50 kilometers east of Mykolaiv. The terrain is exceptionally unfavorable for advances across open wheat fields with little cover, and the attack was unsuccessful. The Russian Air Force continues to try and disrupt the Ukrainian bridgehead on the east bank of the Inulitz River. Andreevka, Lozova, and Velike Arakova were hit by airstrikes. Ukrainian forces destroyed a Russian ammunition depot in Eshenka. And Russian and Ukrainian forces continue to exchange artillery and rockets fired from MLRS along the rest of the line of conflict. Russian forces continue to amass east of Kherson city, where G-locks are still tenuous but somewhat operational. Here's our assessment. Based on available information, we have adjusted Bilohirka as under Ukrainian control from contested and moved the line of conflict south. Due to the open terrain and limited cover, we have a high degree of uncertainty on where Russian and Ukrainian lines are located 
between Russian-controlled Bruskinsky and Ishenka to the south and Ukrainian-controlled Bilohirka and Lozova along the bank of the Inulets. Ivan Fedorov, mayor of Melitopol, reported that three to four columns of Russian vehicles are passing through the city daily. Some equipment is being moved to reinforce positions in Kherson and Zaporizhia, and some equipment brought into Zaporizhia in late May and June is being withdrawn due to a lack of trained personnel. We had assessed earlier plans to use T-62 tanks as fixed firing points and pillboxes as dubious. The main gun has an effective range of 1,400 to 1,700 meters when used for direct fire. Digging pillboxes that close to the line of conflict in Zaporizhia would have been challenging at best. We have seen little evidence that the plan was executed. Instead, T-62s have been deployed into the Donbass and Kherson. Ukraine has its challenges fielding tank crews, with some speculation that the delay of the counteroffensive in Kherson is due to staffing issues. We maintain that the Kherson counteroffensive will not resemble a rapid advance over the open steppe when and if it starts. It will be more methodical and be done in hops to new defensible positions. Ukraine has already forced Russia to abandon plans to advance on Siversk, Slovyansk, and Kramatorsk, and forced troops to be removed north of Kharkiv. Ukraine is slowly gaining control of the initiative by their actions and loudly telegraphing the intent to launch a counteroffensive in Kherson. If Ukraine were to strike in a different location east of Kherson, they would have a much shorter distance to travel across the country, while Russian forces would have to swing south through Zaporizhia and the Donbass. In Mykolaiv, the Russian objective is to capture the oblast and break civilian will with continued terror attacks. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent further Russian advance into the oblast, intercept missile attacks, and minimize civilian casualties. Last week, Ukrainian forces targeted Russian S-300 missile sites in Kherson and Mykolaiv. Over the last four days, Mykolaiv city was only hit once by anti-aircraft missiles in a ground-to-ground capacity. Artillery and rockets fired by MLRS hit settlements outside of the city. In Zaporizhia, the Russian objective is to interdict personnel and equipment assembling for a counteroffensive and break civilian will with continued terror attacks. The Ukrainian objective is to prepare for and stage a counterattack, prevent further Russian advances, and exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict. Russian and Ukrainian leaders traded accusations of shelling the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the largest nuclear reactor in Europe. Enerhoatom reported that rockets fired by MLRS on August 6th landed adjacent to the dry storage of spent fuel rods. Three radiation sensors were destroyed in the attack. Enerhoatom claims that the Russian garrison of 500 troops and employees of Rosatom moved to bunkers before the rocket attack. One Enerhoatom employee was wounded in the attack and hospitalized. In our assessment, Ukraine used loitering munitions to strike tents accommodating the Russian garrison at the plant and destroyed one MLRS vehicle between two cooling towers of the nuclear power plant. The Russian Ministry of Defense has been actively trying to erode Western support of Ukraine. We can't determine who fired on the plant. Russian forces have launched false flag operations in Transnistria, Mariupol, and, our research concluded, the Olenivka penal colony. And we find it highly unlikely that Ukraine would risk a nuclear disaster on its own soil. In modern warfare, using a nuclear power plant as a military and firebase is unprecedented. In Dnipropetrovsk, Russian forces have, for the last month, been relentless firing rockets from MLRS on the city of Nikopol on the opposite bank of the Dnipro River. Yesterday, Nikopol was hit by up to 60 grad rockets fired by MLRS. Two people were injured, and 50 private homes were damaged or destroyed. In parts of the city, natural gas and electric service were knocked out. 
A second attack fired another 20 grad rockets in the city area, bringing the month's total to almost 1,400 strikes. The Russian Air Force fired two KH-59 Ovod from Su-24 aircraft on Shervonokhryorivka. There were no details on the target, damage, or casualties at the time of recording. North, in the Chernihiv and Sumy region, the Russian objective is to lock Ukrainian military resources in place and break civilian will with continued terror attacks. The Ukrainian objective is to maintain enough force strength on the border with Russia to prevent Russian troops from crossing. Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy regional administrative and military governor, reported that Seredina Buda, Esmen, Bilopilia, Budin, Pavlivka, and Nova Sloboda were shelled. Seredina Buda was under heavy attack from artillery, mortars, rockets from MLRS, and airstrikes at the time of recording. Video from Seredina Buda showed an aircraft was shot down, but the belligerent could not be identified. The settlement is on the Russian border and was an international crossing into Zernovo, Russia before the start of the war. In our assessment, the area is very far from Ukrainian air bases and has no ongoing air operations. We can't validate if this was a Russian aircraft, but we assess at this time it's likely. In Cherniv, the settlements of Chai and Kremyach were shelled by Russian forces over the international border. There wasn't additional information on damage or casualties. There were no significant military actions in the Kyiv region or in the Black Sea and Odessa region. Looking to the west, the Ukrainian airbase east of Venetia was hit by three cruise missiles. The Air Force of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reported victims, but did not specify how many or their condition. Air raid sirens didn't sound until after the second missile strike. Officials are investigating why the early warning system failed. An unspecified number of cruise missiles also hit the Ukrainian airbase of Kropvinitsky in the Kirovorod Oblast. Unfortunately, there wasn't additional information at the time of recording. Ukrainian air defenses intercepted Russian cruise missiles near Kremenchuk in the Poltava Oblast and Uman in the Cherkasse Oblast. Let's talk about theater-wide and external developments. On February 24th, 20 Russian generals of various ranks were directly involved in planning and executing the invasion of Ukraine. Ten have been confirmed killed in combat in less than six months, and another six relieved of command. The Kremlin has likely fired General Colonel Alexander Zhurovlev, who had commanded the Western Military District, General Alexander Vladimirovich Dvornikov, who was relieved of command over all combat forces in Ukraine, and General Gennady Valeryovich Zhidko. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres demanded that the International Atomic Energy Agency get immediate access to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant after Russia and Ukraine accused each other of shelling the plant. At a news conference in Japan, Guterres said, quote, any attack to a nuclear power plant is a suicidal thing, end quote. The United States announced another $1 billion in military aid to Ukraine today. Sources within the Department of Defense report that Ukraine will receive more HIMARS ammunition NASM surface-to-air missile system ammunition, and 50 M113 armored medical transports. Ukrainian presidential advisor Mikhail Podolyak confirmed that the Air Force received four Su-25 ground-attack aircraft donated by North Macedonia. Officials had denied any knowledge of the transfer when the transfer was first reported on August 5th. Russian sources claim that a NATO AGM-88 high-speed anti-radiation missile was used against a target in the southern part of Ukraine. Pictures of the debris showed Latin alphabet stenciling consistent with the AGM-88, and no blatant manipulation of the pictures. 
The photos launched several conspiracy theories of NATO-provided aircraft already operating in Ukraine, or secret missions of F-22 fighter jets stationed in Poland. The F-22, however, is incapable of carrying the AGM-88, and it would be almost impossible for NATO aircraft such as the F-15 or F-16 to be in theater without being caught on camera. The missile is not compatible with Soviet-era avionics and electronics. Still, it could be possible that modifications were made to Ukrainian aircraft to support the use of the missile. Another possibility is the pictures are just a social media fake to ensnare open-source intelligence into chasing a dead end. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. You'll find it at about minute 36. Amnesty International made a statement regarding their report on Ukrainian tactics after an international outcry and accusations of false moral equivalency. Others called it a gift to Russian propagandists that will endanger schoolchildren and hospital patients across Ukraine. The statement reads, quote, Amnesty International deeply regrets the distress and anger that our press release on the Ukrainian military's fighting tactics has caused. Since Russia's invasion began in February 2022, Amnesty International has been rigorously documenting and reporting on war crimes and violations committed in Ukraine, speaking to hundreds of victims and survivors whose stories illuminate the brutal reality of Russia's war of aggression. We have challenged the world to demonstrate its solidarity with Ukrainians through concrete action, and we will continue to do so. We must be very clear. Nothing we documented Ukrainian forces doing in any way justifies Russian violations. Russia alone is responsible for the violations it has committed against Ukrainian civilians. End quote. The statement ends with, quote, Amnesty International's priority will always be ensuring that civilians' lives and human rights are protected during conflict. End quote. The Kremlin hailed the report, despite blocking Amnesty International's website on March 11th and suspending its operations in Russia on April 8th. The Russian Ministry of Defense has denied all war crimes and accusations of atrocities. Amnesty International has made no statement about the prisoners of war killed at Olenivka or indicated if there is an ongoing investigation. On July 29th, the organization condemned the torture and execution of a Ukrainian soldier recorded on video. Researchers at Bellingcat identified 29-year-old Okur Suj Mongush of the Tuvan region of Russia as the torturer and executioner in the video. Mongush spoke with Bellingcat investigators and claimed the video was an edited fake made to discredit his Chechen unit. Russian forces shelled an apartment block in Bakhmut, setting the building on fire. At the time of this recording, there was no information on casualties. Three civilians were killed in Mospanove when the settlement was shelled about 85 kilometers southeast of Kharkiv. A mortar shell landed in the yard of a home, killing the trio instantly. The DNR militia intentionally destroyed the Sviato Iverskoho Zinochi Monastery in Piski, leveling the church and outbuildings in an August 6th artillery barrage. The intentional targeting of significant cultural, religious, educational, historical, and scientific facilities has been considered a war crime since 1918 and was codified under the Geneva Convention. Since the start of the war, 18 European nations have accepted over 1,000 hospital patients from Ukraine for treatment. European Commissioner for Health and Food Safety Stella Kyriakides said, quote, from day one, the EU has been working tirelessly to support Ukraine and its people 
in the face of Russia's brutal military aggression. As part of this, the EU Civil Protection Mechanism has allowed patients in urgent need of treatment and care to receive it in hospitals across the EU, while relieving pressure on the healthcare systems of Ukraine's neighboring countries. This is true European solidarity in action. End quote. There were no significant geopolitical developments over the weekend. On the economic side of things, however, four more bulk carriers left Ukrainian ports in the Odessa region carrying 161,000 tons of corn, meal, and sunflower oil. Ukraine expects to open the Pivdeni port next week, increasing export capacity to 3 million tons a month. The cargo will be inspected in Turkey by Turkish, Russian, Ukrainian, and United Nations officials before sailing on to their final destinations, which include China, Italy, and ports in Turkey. The first cargo ship since February 24th arrived in Chornomorsk. The bulk carrier Fulmar S is scheduled to be loaded and will join a future convoy out of the port. Nigeria's negotiations to provide natural gas to Europe appear to be winding down as conservation measures and deals with Algeria, Azerbaijan, and Norway are closing the supply gap. Former chairman of the Society of Petroleum Engineers Nigerian Council, Joseph Nwakwe, said Nigeria is not in the same market position because the nation has failed to develop natural gas export infrastructure. Nwakwe cited Nigeria's inability to load its West Africa gas pipeline, causing neighboring nations to devise their own solutions, such as LNG terminals. The ruble remains flat, with the official exchange rate of 60 rubles for one U.S. dollar. The iPhone index is 90 rubles for one U.S. dollar. Oil and gasoline prices opened slightly higher in trading this morning. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.